As we turn our attention to Romans chapter 9, let me just admit, this passage is a passage that a lot of people just skip. <laughs> or a lot of people do what I did last week and just do one big survey message on Romans 9, 10, and 11, then move on, because there is a lot going on in this passage that, frankly, can be very controversial. One of the difficulties is that the message that I preach today on Romans chapter 9, if it stood on its own, you would lean a particular way. <laughs> uh, if we skip chapter 9 and just preach chapter 10, you would lead, lean an opposite way. Um, the reality, though, is Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 are both present and both true. And so we're going to have to grapple with what all of that means and, and understand that this is not, a because it's complicated, a throwaway section um, in Romans chapter 9. Uh, Here's, here's what's been going on in Romans. Paul has said, here's this great gospel. Here's all of these wonderful, good things that God has done. We were separated from him because of our sin, chapters 1 through 3. But then he justifies us. He gives us peace. He reconciles us. He gives us union with Christ. We identify with him. We have the Holy Spirit. Um, he is sanctifying us and turning us into the image of his son in a progressive way in the hope of glory and glorification that is going to come. All of this is really, really good news. All these great things God is doing and he has promised. And the question becomes, well, can you trust him? Anybody can make promises. <laughs> But does he have the kind of track record that would allow us to trust him? And so, so Doug Moo says this, um, Romans 9 through 11, therefore, is an integral part of Paul's letter to the Romans. These chapters contribute to Paul's exposition of the gospel, this good news, by showing that it provides fully for God's promises to Israel when those promises are rightly understood. So if you understand what God promised in the Old Testament, if you understand what he said there, you understand God really has been faithful. But Romans 9 and 10 is going to have to help us understand what exactly did he promise. Doug Moo goes on to say this. Paul's complex theology... Paul's complex putting together of theological complexities in chapters 9 through 11 has a very practical purpose. To unite the squabbling Roman Christians behind his vision of the gospel and its implication for the relationship of Jew and Gentile. As so often in Romans, Paul's approach is balanced. He insists against the presumption of many Gentiles in the community that the gospel does not signal the abandonment of Israel, especially in chapter 11. But he also makes clear that Jews and Jewish Christians who think that they have an inalienable salvific birthright are in error. Um, well, here's what Paul's doing. Because there's a, there are competing positions... It's, it's as if they have been somehow polarized. Anybody ever feel like this may be relevant? <laughs> There's a community that has been polarized. And, and what Paul is saying is to you polarized pe people, I want to give you a balanced perspective. And their particular version of polarization said um, the Gentiles were saying, God's finished with the Jews, it's just us Gentiles. And the Jews were saying, no, we have a birthright to this. Paul is going to explain, okay, how has God been working with the Jews and the Gentiles? And he's trying to unite them from their polarized positions. Um, this is my last Doug Moo quote. Uh, Paul, therefore, criticizes extremists from both sides, paving the way for his plea for reconciliation in chapters 14 and 15. 
what he's going to do is he's going to address these issues of how God is, is dealing with Israel. And he's, he's going to say, you need to understand fully all that is going on. And in order to do that, you really have to have a pretty significant understanding of what happened in the Old Testament. And so um, I've made available for you online um, and available for you in two different versions out at the Connection Center um, a chart of the Old Testament that puts some things together. And I'm just going to highlight a couple things to orient you that will be helpful in understanding what Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 9. Um, first of all, you'll see on this chart across the top there are some dates. Round dating, let me put it this way, um, Adam probably lived somewhere between four and 6,000 years ago. Okay, so, so l- let's say that that is 4,000 B.C. Okay, so 4,000 B.C., is Adam, when, when Adam lived, okay? Um, that's a helpful thing for just creation. <laughs> uh, first life, probably, um, around 6,000 years ago, 4,000 B.C. Abraham, round numbers, comes around about 2,000 years later. So rough numbers, Abraham is in the year 2,000 B.C., 2,000 years later than Adam, 2,000 B.C. Moses is roughly 1,500 B.C., David, roughly 1,000 B.C., okay? Um, One of the other things that you're going to see in this chart um, is that there's a line of books right through the middle. Those 11 books, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, um, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. If you took just those 11 books That's the storyline of the Old Testament. You read those books back to back, you've got the entire narrative of the Old Testament. Everything else fits in as a pit stop along the way. So if you're wanting to become more familiar with the Old Testament, one of the things you can do is read those 11 books back to back, you get the storyline. Another thing I want to highlight for you is that um, the prophets that are kind of down on the very bottom of the page, there's three groups of prophets, the pre-exilic prophets, the prophets that prophesy before um, Israel is taken captive and and really uh, scattered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So they're prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. And then there are pre-exilic prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah that um, is eventually taken captive in 586 B.C. Those two groups of prophets, one to Israel, one to Judah, are before the exile. There are two in the exile, Ezekiel and Daniel. And then when they come back after 70 years of captivity in Babylonia, there's the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last three. The reason I'm going through that is I want you to notice that um, Hosea prophesies to the north and Isaiah prophesies to the south, but chronologically those two guys are contemporaries. Hosea and Isaiah would have ministered at the same time, just one to the northern kingdom, one to the southern kingdom. That's going to be critical in Romans chapter 9 because what Paul is going to do is he's going to appeal to a number of quotes from Hosea and Isaiah to support his position. Um, So I just want you to see kind of how all of this stuff fits together. And um, if you want to say, I need to understand this better, and really an understanding of how all this fits together is very helpful, um, maybe this chart can help with what did God say in the Old Testament? Because the question is going to be this, whatever he said in the Old Testament, if he's not faithful to do it, how can I trust what he said in the New Testament? So you have to have a clear understanding of what God said in the Old Testament. 
This is what's going on in Romans chapter 9. So it's a little bit tricky because you have to have some biblical knowledge. Um, It's also tricky because we're talking about some divisive theological issues here. (laughs) Um, What we're going to talk about this week is some clear teaching on predestination. Next week is going to be some clear teaching on human responsibility. The two of them have to be understood together, but we are going to take them one at a time. First of all, addressing this issue of predestination or election and, and, and just letting the Scripture itself say what it says, because it says some very clear things about God's choice of us and, and how that plays itself out. Um, now, let, let me, I think if I possibly can beg you, come to church next week. Just come, because I wish you'd be here. But come next week, because chapter 10 is something you have to understand to get the full package. But chapter 9 is going to be clearly presenting some um, truths about predestination. Now, um, John Stott says this, <laughs> Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, and theologians are unwise to systematize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigma, or loose ends are left. Um, I want to use this quote just to say, At the end of the day, the response to Romans 9 and 10 is not, oh, I understand it now. Ken has made it clear. I hope that happens to some degree. But the correct response is, I'm submitting to something that I will never fully be able to put my mind around. I'm going to submit to something that is only understood in the mind of God fully. Now, I don't think we need to be foolish, but, but we don't need to only read Romans 9 or only read Romans 10. We have to read both, and, and then we have to say, okay, what does this tell us? And ultimately, um, I'm going to submit to who God is and, and let him be God. Now, I'm not going to leave you just wandering around. I've got some resources out there for you. Um, there's one by Chuck Swindoll um, on predestination, and it's a really clear, simple version of that. Um, There's one by uh, Frank Thielman that is more thorough than that. It it may not be as clear, but it's more thorough, Uh, both of them dealing with predestination and election. Um, There is one that I put out there that is dealing with, well, how does God deal with the Israelites? Um, And that important one is by Frank Thielman as well. Um, This passage starts with something very not theological, okay? (laughs) This passage starts with something very passionate. Um, Paul's heart as a theologian, because he's getting ready to launch into some complex theology. But that's not where he starts. And in fact, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, one that is all about predestination and election, one that is all about human responsibility and evangelism and mission, and then chapter 11, which is all about eschatology. (laughs) Three big, huge topics. Paul starts each one of those chapters with something from his heart. Um, John Stott says this, each of these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, begins with a personal statement by Paul in which he identifies himself with the people of Israel and expresses his profound concern for them. To him, Israel's unbelief is far more than an intellectual problem. He writes of the sorrow and anguish he feels over them in chapter 9, his prayerful longing for their salvation in chapter 10, and his conviction that God has not rejected them in chapter 11. So, even in the midst of a lot of deep theology that we will ultimately never be able to wrap our minds around, Paul's heart is engaged in this. He understands that, that this has a practical ramification for him. And in fact, 
um, in a way that I don't always do. I'm going to stop through these messages in the midst of the message to say, well, how does this part apply for us? So let's, let's begin with parts, Paul's heart uh, for the Israelites. He starts off by, by sharing his anguished heart because he's, he is part of a lost people. Here, here's how he begins this in Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul says, first of all, I recognize that most of the Jews by this time, this is some um, 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, at this time, he's recognizing most Jews are rejecting that Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and the vast people who are coming to faith and becoming a part of the church are Gentiles. And he's telling you, I'm telling you the truth. This, this hurts me deeply so much that, that I wish I could take their place. The irony of that is this, is that Christ took their place. Not that Paul is wrong. I think Paul is going, I can't take their place because Christ did take their place. But he's saying, this is breaking my heart that, that not many of my people have, have come to embrace that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these predictions and, and prophecies and pictures in the Old Testament. And, and he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you the absolute truth. This is, this is hard for me. So what he's going to say in the rest of these three chapters is, is not easy for him. Now, he, he's going to next move to the privileges that the Jews have, in, in essence, to say, here's all they had, and they still didn't receive. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. By the way, you can debate it a, a little bit, but um, the fact that Messiah is God overall, is a clear statement, and there are a number of them in the New Testament, um, that Paul did believe that Jesus was God. Um, so you've got a clear statement, but, but in the midst of what he's doing here is, is a presentation of the benefits of what it means to be Jewish. And, and he's going to say they have a lot of benefits, and then they've got two big people in their, in their deal. Um, they're part of the family of God. They experience the presence of God in the Shekinah glory. God revealed to them the plan of God through the law. Um, God's revelation was made to them. Um, the, the house of God, the, the temple, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God was for them. And, and all of the promises came through to them. All of these benefits were theirs. God was expressing, I'm with you. Here's how you're supposed to live. I'm present with you. Not only that, they had all of the forefathers of the faith, and the Messiah came through you. It's not like God is asking the Jews to accept a Messiah from another race. Um, the Messiah is Jewish. Here's all of these huge benefits. Um, and, and what Paul's desire is, captured here by Chuck Swindolf, this quick inventory of Israel's blessings and privilege underscores their lack of excuse for failing to believe. God gave them all kinds of things. <laughs> um, and and the, the thing is, they, they had all those benefits. They don't believe, and that's breaking Paul's heart. It's not matter of fact to him. And in fact, I need to pause for a moment and ask us a few questions. <laughs> Number one, do we have any anguished heart for the loss? 
This is breaking Paul's heart. Does it break our heart that, that people are lost? Does it break our heart enough for us to tell them the truth and to reiterate again and again? Um, even when you don't think they're going to necessarily respond. Um, I, I think it raises another issue for us that Paul's going to address, but just this, have we mistaken our heritage for true faith? The Jews seem to be believing this. Um, just because we're Jewish, we're in. Ha, ha, have you fallen into the trap of, well, just because I grew up in a Christian family, I'm in. The reality is personal faith decisions have to be made. You have to choose to say Christ is my Savior. He's not your personal Savior in like a genie that he now comes and he does what you want him to do. But you have to personally appropriate it for yourself. And you have to ask people to make personal decisions. So both in our own faith and in our evangelism, we need to recognize that just because someone's in a Christian family doesn't mean they're necessarily a believer. Um, just because you're in a Christian family doesn't mean you're a believer. Just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you're a believer. That has to be a personal decision. And when you share the, the, the faith, don't assume things that you shouldn't be assuming. Well, Paul moves pretty quickly from his heart as a theologian to really God's heart for people. <laughs> and, and God's desire is to save, but he does that through his gracious and sovereign purposes. And here's what he's going to do for the rest of this chapter, really, is he's going, to, he's going to show you his heart, and he's going to demonstrate that God's sovereign election is based solely on his will and his purpose to bring glory to himself. His choice is not based on our performance or our intentions. Let me say this again, Romans chapter 9. God's sovereign election and choice of who will be a part of his family and a part of his plan and how they will be a part of his plan is based solely on his will and his purpose to bring glory to himself, not on our performance, our intentions. He, he doesn't say, well, if, if your intentions are good or if you're good enough, then I'll choose you to be on my team. It's a solely gracious choice based on his will, independent of our intentions, independent of our performance. And he's going to make that abundantly clear in this passage. Um, now, I, I want to set this up with just a theological construct for you before we get going here. Maybe this will help you hear the rest of what I'm going to say a little bit easier. God's purpose in the world is to bring glory to himself, not make me happy. That's one of the things that we're going to have to grapple with and ultimately submit to and surrender to is that God's purpose is to bring glory to himself. God is the only justifiably self-centered person in the universe. Now, there's at least one other self-centered person in the universe, and he stands before you today. I'm just not justifiably self-centered. <laughs> it, is, it is quite unjustifiable for me to be self-centered. But God, bringing glory to himself, is completely justifiable because he is worthy of the glory and... If you just knew him better, your life would be better. So to draw glory to himself so that we will be drawn to him, that is the best thing he could ever do. And so, so God is his purpose in everything he does. God's purpose in everything he does is to bring glory to himself. And that glory um, 
is going to happen primarily through exalting his son and, and, and proclaiming that. And so that's the, the heart of what we're going to see here. Um, Tom Schreiner says, the thesis of all of Romans 9 through 11 is stated in 9.6, kind of the first word after Paul gives his heart, uh, and that is, the word of God has not failed. God will fulfill his promises. He's made a lot of promises. He promised big in Romans 1 through 8. Has, has his word failed when you look at the Old Testament story? Has God's word failed? No, it has not failed. Let's look at what he says. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not who, all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Just because you're Jewish by birthright, just because you have Jewish blood in your veins, doesn't mean you're a true Jew. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring were reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Abraham had more than one son. Abraham had two sons. This is where you need to understand the Old Testament. Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was born first. And there was Isaac. And if you read the Old Testament story, Abraham liked Ishmael. <laughs> In fact, when God came and said, Sarah's going to have a son, Abraham's response was, well, what about Ishmael? I like him. He said, no, I'm coming back, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah's the one through whom the promises are going to come. It is the son from Sarah, Isaac, not Ishmael, through whom the promises were going to come. So Abraham had two, son, two sons, but they were by different wives. You had, you had Abraham and Hagar impatiently, um, not waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Um, that is the genesis of the conception of, of uh, Ishmael. But then you have Abraham and Sarah who have a son, Isaac. And he's saying, see, just because someone is in the bloodline of Abraham doesn't mean they're in because God chose Isaac. Um, here's basically what that means. Family tree is not determinative factor for your salvation. Again, I'm going to go back to just because you were born in a Christian family, just because your parents are Christians or your grandma's Christian, or just because you grew up in church doesn't mean that you're saved. Faith in the promise of God is what makes someone a part of God's family. From, from your standpoint, now I'm stepping into chapter 10 a little bit. From your standpoint, it, it is putting your faith in what God has promised. And what God has promised is all of Romans 1 through 8. That he will judge sinners. He's provided a way out of that judgment through the work of Jesus Christ. But now someone might raise the question, yeah, but there's, there's two different mothers. There's Abraham, but two, two moms. He's got an even better illustration. Here's it. Here it is. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Isaac, son of Abraham and Sarah. Isaac marries Rebekah, and, and she has two children. They're actually twins. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the elder will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. 
before we get to that last phrase, let's pause for a moment and say, now we've got an illustration that's a little bit different. Isaac and Rebekah, not only are, are they going to have two sons, they're twins. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, twins. Esau, the firstborn, Jacob, the second. Now, when we studied through the book of Genesis, we got to know these two guys, okay? Neither one of them very much um, stellar characters. But I will tell you this. If you had the choice, knowing what we know in Scripture, about Jacob and about Esau, your friend would be Esau, not Jacob. Esau is a ton of fun. Wild. He's going to pay the bill. He's going to have a good time. And if something goes wrong, he's going to forgive you and it's all okay. Jacob, you better watch your back for this guy. Esau was the firstborn. Um, Jacob was the secondborn. Um, Esau, hunter, had a lot of fun. Just laissez-faire. <laughs> Jacob, conniving his whole life. But God said, the younger will serve the older. I'm going to choose Jacob, not Esau. And, and it's not that God chooses the worst. <laughs> sometimes he does. Sometimes he chooses really good guys. But, but God chooses Jacob, not Esau, and he makes that choice not on the basis of anything that they did, good or bad. doesn't matter who's who. He did it on the basis of him who calls. He did it on the basis of his own choice. Now, there is a phrase um, there at the end that we have to deal with. <laughs> Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What's going on there? Well, let me get there eventually here. Eventually, Jacob received the blessing instead of his older brother Esau. Why? Again, because that's the way God chose it to be. That's the answer to the question. Why? Because God chose it to be that way. Before either man had the capacity to choose right or wrong, the Lord elected Jacob, who was, by the way, an incredibly undeserving man. You, you can't look at it and go, well, Jacob's, he, God knew he was going to be a good guy. He wasn't. In Romans 9 through 13, Paul argues that God's promise to Israel will be fulfilled since it depends on his grace alone. Why can you trust that God will do what he's going to do? It's because what he promises he's going to do because it, it only depends on him. It doesn't depend on how we respond to it. God will do what he plans to do because it only depends on him choosing to do it. Now, now we do have an interesting phrase. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. Um, these are interesting words. Confusion up there on the screen is what you should see. You're seeing it in English. You see it in Greek. But he's quoting Malachi, so I put it up there in Hebrew. Because this is um, an English translation of a Greek passage that is quoted from the Hebrew Scriptures. But it all is going to communicate the same thing. One study Bible says this, The context in Malachi, because Paul is quoting Malachi 1, the context in Malachi indicates that this is a technical covenant vocabulary in which love and hate are synonymous with choose and reject. Um, Paul is talking about what Malachi is talking about, and that is that, that God said, I'm going to make a covenant and choose to make it with Jacob, and I'm not going to make the covenant with Esau. 
And, and by the time you get to Malachi, which, by the way, last book written in the Old Testament, by the time you get to Malachi, this has already played itself out. That the, the descendants of Jacob have become um, the nation of Israel that God has been working with um, at that point for almost 2,000 years. And at that point, the descendants of Esau are the Edomites who God has rejected and God is not working with them. Um, by the way, take a little bit of the emotion out of this passage. I'll give you some examples of that. Um, the same word is used for Esau um, hated his birthright. When, when Esau is being tricked by Jacob, and Jacob has made a bowl of soup when Esau is out hunting, um, it says Esau despised, and it uses this word for hate, he despised his birthright. It's not that he looked at his birthright and said, ooh, I just hate that thing. I never want to see it again. I don't want any of it. No, it, what, it, what it was is he had a birthright, and he had Jacob there saying, I'll trade you this bowl of soup for your birthright. And, and Esau said, I prioritize, I choose the bowl of soup. It's not that he, he hated it in, in terms of emotional disdain. This is the same word that's used when, um, when Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah. He didn't disdain Leah. He just treated Rachel better than Leah. Um, if I can give a more contemporary illustration that uh, may or may not help. Um, I love Dawn <laughs> and chose to marry her. All the other girls, I kind of hate them. Well, I don't, I don't loathe them. I don't have emotional, just, you know, hatred for them. It, this idea that I love Dawn is, is that I, I, I choose her. I chose to enter into a covenant relationship with her. And in comparison to what I feel about Dawn Wilson, all the other girls, um, well, the other girl. I'm, I'm trying to portray it like there's a long line of them back there. Trust me, there's not a long line of them. <laughs> but I love Dawn, and I love her in such a way that the others would, do you hate me? Oh, I just chose her. Um, Doug Moo, though, does, does say this. Some think hate may mean simply, in Semitic fashion, some kind of love less. But the Old Testament context points in a different direction. The context is clearly covenantal, so that love means, in effect, choose to enter into this covenant, while hate means reject. I'm not going to use you. What, then, is the answer to the question of God's justice in Romans? The, the answer is that salvation is granted to sinners, to those who stand in need of mercy. God's mercy is his free prerogative. He gives it to whom he wishes as the sovereign God. No one deserves his mercy. And leaving Esau in his sin was not unjust, because God, God's doing it not on the basis of what they're doing. He's doing it on the purpose of his calling, his, his prerogative to say, you're the one I'm going to enter into the covenant with. Pause some theology. Let's let's get practical for a minute here. God reverses the natural order very often, not all the time, but but with Isaac and and um, Jacob, he reverses the natural order. He contradicts cultural expectation, which would be the the oldest is the one you're going to choose. God doesn't always choose the the oldest. God is always the initiator in it, though. He's the initiator in this grace process. And he chooses before we act. It's clear. I just have to say that. Now, 
I mean, there's more to say. But so far, it's clear that God chooses before Jacob or Esau did anything. He chose him in the womb. Now, he's going to keep illustrating this. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Okay, because he understands people are going to be asking this question. Not at all, for he says to Moses, and then here's God's freedom again. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It doesn't, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. Your intentions and your work is not what God is choosing, but it depends on God's mercy. God is merciful to us. That's the only reason we're saved is because of God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God's purpose is to do everything so that his name will be proclaimed and he will be glorified through it all. Now, this raises a question about what's going on with Pharaoh. And we have a lot of narrative of Pharaoh in the Old Testament in Exodus. So let me give you just a a summary of what's going on there. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, before the whole process started, God said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 4 and Exodus 7. But then we're told Pharaoh hardened his heart in Exodus 8 and in Exodus 9. And then it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened a couple of times. But then it's also made clear the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, so did Did Pharaoh harden his own heart, or did God harden his heart? Everyone knows the answer to this is yes. Now, let me back up and say, all of us are born with hard hearts. All of us are born as sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Like, you're fine and innocent until you commit your sin, then you become a sinner. No, we're born guilty as sinners because we have inherited a sin nature, and, and that sin is imputed to us. The sin of Adam is imputed to us, which makes us guilty. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, you have to understand that if that's not the process, Adam's guilt imputed to us, then you eliminate the process of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. It's a benefit. It is a gracious gift of God that he said, here's how it works. You're guilty because of what one guy did. Because there, then, you can be righteous because of what one person did. So we are born sinners guilty. God can leave you there, or God may, out of his compassion and mercy, choose to say, this person will respond to my grace. When Paul says here, then, that God hardens people, He must mean that God justly punishes people who, like Pharaoh and everyone else, are already in rebellion against him. God doesn't take people, oh, I want to follow you, I want to follow you, I want to follow you, and say, no, you can't. Be rebellious. No, we're all born rebellious and falling sin of his glory. God punishes them by calcifying their rebellion. Or to put it another way, he further further, um, hardens resistant hearts. And you're born resistant. So, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. The only people who are saved are saved because of God's mercy, not because you are able to pull it off. The essence of the message is that God brought Pharaoh onto the stage of history, raised him up, to accomplish his own purposes, namely to display his power and broadcast his name. 
So even, the, even a person who is resistant, God is still going to use all of that for his glory. I was talking to someone before the, um, before the message today. Uh, one of my favorite Martin Luther quotes is that even the devil is God's devil. God even uses the devil to ultimately bring glory to himself. Um, but, but God is the initi- it's God who's in control of this whole process. Frank Thielman says, nothing that originates from the human side, whether desire or effort, influences God's decision to show mercy to some and not others. God is doing it based on his calling, his will, his purpose. So let's pause for a moment and say God is just because he acts for his glory. Is God unjust? No, he's doing this all for his glory, which is the right purpose. And God is free to use his creatures as he chooses. Um, He's going to explain that even further. But um, John Stott says it this way, The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. (laughs) That's really the wonder. The, The wonder is not... Okay, why is, is God being fair? <laughs> the wonder is, given how we are all guilty and fall short of his glory, and none of us meet his perfect standard, the wonder is, why does he choose to save anybody? But let me go on to say, and I'm looking forward to chapter 10, God's sovereign choice doesn't remove human responsibility. When you get to chapter 10, you're responsible to make the choice. That What I'm saying in chapter 9 does not eliminate what I'm going to say, what Shane's going to say next week in chapter 10, and that is we are responsible. And God's sovereign choice doesn't remove human opportunity. And this is where you, you're never going to fully wrap your mind around it. We're responsible to choose God, and everyone has the opportunity to choose God. And if they choose it, Romans 10, it's because God willed it, Romans 9. I, I don't understand how all that fits together. Um, theologians don't either. Tom Schreiner says this. In Romans 9, we have an example of what is called compatibilism. God is sovereign over all things, even where the dice land. And human choices are significant and authentic. God is sovereign, but our choices are real. This doesn't mean our choices aren't real. Compatibilism in a book I've recommended before, that little theology book, Compatibilism, is the theory that human free will is consistent. It's compatible with God's sovereign prerogative to determine or will all things that are to happen. Now, here's very, something very important. In order for this to be true, compatibilism usually argues that human freedom is only analogous to God's freedom and not identical with it. More specifically, human freedom is limited, where, whereas God's freedom is absolute. They're compatible, but I can't make them fit fully together. Um, I'm responsible, and I do have real freedom. But my freedom is not as free as God's freedom, because my freedom only acts within the plan of God that is designed to bring glory to himself. Let's keep moving on. Romans 9.16 says the promise doesn't depend on human effort or human free will. Those who receive salvation depend entirely on and totally upon God's mercy. Again, now I'm back in Romans 9. If you get to Romans 10, it's going to say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. But you're only able to call on the name of the Lord because God, in his wisdom and in his grace, makes all of this available to us. Paul understands he's got a lot on his hands here, so he's going to continue. 
One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall uh, what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make one of the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Um, he understands. There, there's the chance you might go, wait a minute. Why are, you, why are you treating me this way? Why are you answering me back? The phrase answer back um, is a really interesting term. It, it really literally is our term talking back. It's, it's what little kids do to their parents um, when they talk back. And, and this is the question that is, is being asked. Why are you talking back to God? Um, because, because he's sovereign and, and he's like the potter who's who's free to do what he wants, and you're just the clay. God, like a potter working clay, has the right and the skill to shape some sinful people so that in the end they receive his mercy and honor and shape other sinful people so that eventually uh, they receive the dishonor they deserve for their rebellion against him. God, God is he's free to do as he wishes because he's the potter and we're the clay. Now, I'm going to, right in front of you, give you an example of how unsovereign we are. My plan was to make it through all of chapter 9. God has sovereignly ordained that I run out of time right now. Um, God's sovereign. Hopefully this means he gets glory somehow. And two weeks in chapter 9 is going to... Proclaim his name even more clearly. But what, is this, what has this passage told us so far? And I want to boil it down to, to this. Ultimately, we have to surrender to who God is, not understand who he is. And we have to trust that his desire is to bring glory to himself, which is the best thing that could ever happen in the universe. And he will do that. But that doesn't eliminate for us the opportunity or the responsibility to respond to that. So I'm going to jump to some next steps for this message and give the worship team an opportunity to say, what in the world is he doing out there? Some next steps for this message. Number one, I think it is this. Put God at the center of your world, not you. Put God in his glory at the center of, of everything. Place God, his glory, at the center of everything in your world. Secondly, and this one's a little more pointed. Repent from the belief that God is sitting in heaven to serve you and reorient your priorities so that you are living here to serve God. Because I think so often, a lot of what Christianity presents and a lot of what we would like to embrace says God's here to make us happy. God's here to make us um, fulfilled. God's here to give us the American slash Christian dream. But that's not God's purpose. God's purpose is to proclaim his name, and God's purpose is to bring glory to himself. And, and he, he does that with everything that happens. 
and, and let's push this out from the salvation question. Everything that happens in our life, the good things that we like, he uses it to bring glory to himself. But I'm not the only one standing in the room who can think back over your life and say, I certainly don't understand that one. Why did that happen? It doesn't feel like a good thing to happen. And, and maybe you've, you've lived long enough and God was gracious enough to let you look back and go, oh, I see how that plays itself out for his glory. But he's, he's not obligated to ever let you see that. The good, the bad, God's using it for his glory. And we need to serve him for that purpose, not serve him oh, so that he'll make us happy. But when we bring him glory, when we enjoy his, his sovereignty in our life and accept it, that does make your life much more enjoyable and relaxing. Because you're not, you're not scrambling to try to please him. You're not scrambling to try to fix it all yourself. You just say, I'm going to follow him and I'm going to trust him and I'm going to do what he asked me to do. And I'm going to let him orchestrate it all for his glory.